From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, November 10th. Today marks the 125th anniversary of the only successful coup d'etat in U.S. history. It took place in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. Impact Alpha's David Bank went to Wilmington and we'll hear his conversation with Cedric Harrison, an entrepreneur building a business around recovering the history of that dark day. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Ocean-based startups are riding a wave. Less than a decade ago, the number of impact funds focused on the blue economy could be counted on one hand. But since 2018, the number of ocean-focused funds has quadrupled. Close to $4 billion will be invested in the sector this year, up from $700 million in 2021. That's according to Kate Danaher, who manages S2G Ventures' $100 million ocean and seafood fund. Big private equity firms continue to find robust demand for their impact and climate funds. TPG secured $2.7 billion for its third TPG Rise Fund, up 25% from their earlier fund, but short of the firm's $3 billion cap. Meanwhile, KKR sealed its $2.8 billion Global Impact Fund 2 at more than twice the size of its predecessor. And Brookfield Asset Management bagged $6 billion for a renewable energy infrastructure debt fund. Likewise, retail investors are sticking with impact notes, even in the face of high interest rates. Deposits at big banks are falling, but Catherine Berman of C-Note says she is seeing increased demand for C-Note's flagship fund, which pays 3% interest and is invested with community-based lenders. Calvert Impact Capital has raised rates for its community investment note to 5% for five-year maturities and 3.5% for one-year notes. And this month's list of open impact funds features managers targeting creators of quality jobs and economic mobility. JFF Ventures, the venture arm of the nonprofit Jobs for the Future, invests in tech companies supporting worker upskilling and economic opportunities for low and middle income earners. Meanwhile, in Spain, Q Impact is targeting youth employment across Southern Europe. Find these stories and much more on impactalpha.com. And now it's time for this week's featured conversation. The Wilmington coup of 1898 is not as well known as the Tulsa massacre of 1921, but the events of that day changed the history of the city, the state, and perhaps the country and not for the better. It was 125 years ago today, on November 10th, 1898, that an organized white supremacist militia attacked the city's black leaders and residents and forcefully removed their elected city officials before gunning down citizens in the streets. It was the end of the city's brief period of multiracial democracy and multiracial prosperity. Cedric Harrison, a Wilmington native, has been recovering the lost history of the episode in children's books, videos, and a compelling bus tour of the sites of the violent takeover. Impact Alpha's David Bank went to Wilmington, took the bus tour, and sat down with Cedric for a conversation about the insurrection 
and the history of race and economic power in North Carolina. We're coming up on the 125th anniversary in November of the coup in Wilmington of 1898. It's considered the only, I think, successful coup d'etat. A whole government was was toppled by a white supremacist movement. What struck me when you were telling us this morning, how orchestrated it was, how premeditated it was. Can you just give us the the, the brief overview? Yeah. So the coup d'etat of 1898 was the only successful government overthrow that's been documented to this point on U.S. soil um, because Wilmington was a prominent town for black success, not just entrepreneurially, economically or socially, uh, like you saw in some of your other massacre towns like Atosla or Rosewood. Um, but Wilmington was one of the places to have uh, the first uh, political power um, here that was leaning more so towards uh, blacks. And so. That was taken away in 1898 because of uh, some prominent white people here in Wilmington uh, that were connected to the Civil War and some other bigger uh, white supremacy institutions and organizations. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Um, and they were put together something called the White Declaration of Independence. Um, and they felt like the only way to be able to successfully carry out the White Declaration of Independence was to get rid of the power that black people had. Uh, gained here in Wilmington. And so we were targeted uh, and uh, some people still question it, but there's been facts and evidence that point towards this being orchestrated all the way from uh, a state level uh, to even uh, so a national level. Um, They felt like what was happening here in Wilmington, if too many people found out about it sooner than later, that it was going to take an effect that could not be overturned. And so that is how uh, whites came and gathered and rallied up in the city and literally went and burned the towns, businesses, and neighborhoods, just like, you know, uh, your, the stories of your Rosewoods and your Tulsa, Oklahomas. But here, because we had that political power in the South that was very much so rare and unique, uh, that was taken away here during that time. They literally made the mayor of the town sign over his position as he had a gun held to him uh, and was escorted out of the town. And the people that held that gun wrote their names in position and nothing ever in American history has ever been done to prepare uh, this tragedy. Well, take a step back because what was also striking was the multiracial prosperity and, and, and coalition of um, particularly poor whites and poor white farmers, the populist party. This was a white black majority. This was not a black majority. This was a, a multiracial uh, success story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess maybe that was what was so threatening. Yeah. So, uh, for people now, you know, there's, there's two main, uh, there's, there's two main leaders in the party roles now when it comes to government, you know, there's, there's Democrats and there's Republicans, but in Wilmington, there was a political party called the fusionist party. And it literally was, uh, a spin off of the fusion that had happened between progressive whites and free blacks. And they had, took over the political seats in Wilmington uh, 100% in 1894, literally a few years before 1898. Um, and during that time, it was already so much racial tension because uh, the Civil War was over with and a lot of the Confederate soldiers that had to live with losing and seeing the winner celebrate every day. Um, uh, it was like a domino effect as they continued to see more and more celebration of excellence come from uh, the black community or from progressive whites uh, or for whites that at first didn't have Certain things were now gaining access and power, um, and so they were they were targeted 
um, this political party was targeted and this honestly started the Jim Crow movement uh, throughout the state of North Carolina, which then trickled down throughout other states in the South. The first attack of, of, of the plot, as it were, was against the black owned uh, newspaper, the, the Daily Record, the Daily Record, um, because that that was sort of a focal point for organizing, uh, 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 like I said, this this multiracial coalition. And um, they burned that building down. Yeah, they did. Uh, the Daily Record was one of the first black owned daily printing newspapers in the state of North Carolina. It was owned by a man by the name of Alexander Manley, uh, who was interracial. Um, and very successful. Uh, he had more black and white subscribers than the white um, competitive newspaper here in town. Um, also duly noted that newspapers still exist. Um, but with that being said, um, there was an article that had came out in 1897 by one of the daughters of the Confederacy. It was produced in a newspaper down in Georgia, but ended up making its way throughout the South as the message that she put was, um, that they needed to save white women, or um, her term was Southern womanhood. And to save Southern womanhood, her uh, thought process was that they needed to lynch a black man a day to do so. And Alexander Manley was uh, not a fan of that opinion. And with this newspaper platform, he responded back to that by saying that if uh, women are, or Southern women or white women were scared of, of losing themselves to black men, that... Uh, he felt like they need to look within their own households and, and look within themselves or their fathers um, or their brothers or lovers or what, or what have you and not put that blame on black men as a lot of black men were minding their business, not trying to get into trouble, especially after the Civil War had just been abolished. Um, and there's a lot more details in the article that you can go and actually still read to this day. Um, but that article was then reprinted again in 1898, right around election time. And it was used as propaganda and as a political agenda to not give power back to the Fusionist Party here in Wilmington. And so they ended up rallying up people from all over the state. It was reprinted by your News and Observer and by other big publications throughout the state. And during that time, it rallied up ex-Confederate soldiers and their family members. And these folks came and rallied up in Wilmington and set up shop in front of different voting polls. And these folks were called the Red Shirts. And these individuals stood armed at voting polls and would scare people away that was coming to vote for individuals that was a part of the Fusionist Party that was up for re-election. And they were actually very successful with that technique as the members that were up for re-election that year did not get re-voted in 1898. And so this was to split the white vote off from the black vote and to, in a sense, divide this uh, multiracial uh, majority that had, had some political power here. Yeah, but they weren't just uh, scaring away black voters. They were scaring away white white voters as well. If you if you seem like an ally, you were you were known. You know, they were doing their research, so they were knowing who the who the white people were that weren't racist or weren't uh uh or, or I should say that they knew who the white people were that were supporting uh the black people, the white people that were a part of the Fusionist Party, their family members that was connected and things of that nature. And so, uh, not only were black uh, voters targeted away, but also whites. And so um, then the mob descended on City Hall, made the black elected officials resign at the point of a gun, as you said, uh, substituted the uh, white officials. And uh, then violence ensued after that. And, and I think there's it's, it's not quite known how many people are, are killed, but what, what, what are the estimates? Yeah, so it's not quite known how many people was killed, but, but the massacre happened before the, before the official coup went down. Uh, uh, during the massacre, they said at least 21 to 300 blacks were either dead or gone. Um, right now, they have documented 21. Uh, they only know the names of about 14 of them. 
um, that's still being documented. You can find and have that. That's researched at the Legacy Museum. That's an exhibit at the, at the Legacy Museum. You can find the information there. Um, but then uh, the massacre happened first. And the, and the reason why the coup came after is because even after the massacre happened, um, after they killed a few of those Feel the the black folks during that time they they still realized that a, a lot of the power was still in the hands of folks that could fix a lot of this stuff and so once the smoke was cleared the next day they went to Ellian Hall City Hall and made the remaining members of the Fusionist Party which was the mayor uh, alderman uh, and a few other uh, elected positions sign over their positions and they escorted these people out um, you know uh, arm escorted these people out of, out of Wilmington and then the people that led this initiative wrote their names in position and stayed in position and their family members are still prominent and some of the things that they put in place are still actively still operating well let's take it forward a bit to to, to now i mean one of the things that strikes me is uh you know people have a dream of, of kind of multiracial prosperity um that would uh you know lift all boats so to speak um but it turns out that you know when that that's that's that in itself is threatening and there's often a backlash we're sort of in that period now where, you know, there's 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 two steps forward and then you start seeing uh, a, a backlash. There was just a, a, a white supremacist in Jacksonville that gunned down some black people just because they're black. Um, so how do you see the sort of ebb and flow of this? Yeah. So uh, like I tell people all the time, uh, 1898 didn't happen and go away. <laughs> it evolved over time. It, it, it perfected itself. Um, it happens now still to the extreme, like you just like you just said, for an example, you know, in Jacksonville, Florida, there's still some folks that get so emotionally charged that they'll just go and grab their guns and and take out violence on people that just don't look like them for whatever reasons that don't even have to do with the people that they're taking this this violence out on to where now they can harm you and not even get anywhere near a gun, touch you. You know, there's uh, people all the time that get drugged through the media. Uh, that, that propaganda that was used during... The time to build up to 1898, that specific technique around using the media and the news and stuff like that to make you feel like this person should be discredited or demonized or uh, or deleted, you know, or, or what have you, um, uh, comes comes all the way back to the practices that they used to organize around 18, 1898. Um, the things that uh, you know we learned we learned on the tour today about David Walker and his appeal and how you could get killed with, with owning this book, you know, and it reminds me of the efforts that's going on right now around the critical race theory and the 1619 project, except, you know, nobody's not trying to gun down Nicole Hannah Jones, you know, but that's what happened to David Walker, you know, and, and so, banning books in Florida. Yeah, banning and, books. Yeah, exactly. And so these things are, are, are still here. And, and it just goes back to that saying of, you know, if you don't know your history, then you're bound to repeat itself. And so as I was a person concerned about all of these things um, and living with the consequences of these decisions that have been made and continuously not being fought against, I uh, felt like one of the first problems that I was having was people just continuous, continuously saying, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. And that frustration was the energy that charged me to create an entity that teaches you um, and now I'm just trying to do my best on marketing and getting that out there so that more and more can, people can learn and know and that they have access to have this teaching. Well, there's your there's your tour there. We, we, we met uh, this morning at the 1898 Memorial uh, in the Brooklyn Arts District of, of, of Wilmington. And 
I, I noticed as we went around, lots of plaques uh, and, and historical markers trying to remind people. Um, you showed me the site of an old Confederate statue that had now been torn down after George Floyd's murder. So people kind of know now, but still there's voter suppression. There's other forms of racism, obviously, like is like what beyond just knowing is needed. Yeah. So um, it's crazy because this happened in 1898. But like the placards that you're seeing now just just literally are not they're no more than five years old. You know, the placard that the only placard that has cool in the entire nation well, I would just put it there in 2018. I was at the ceremony. I have a video on my Instagram page of me unveiling it, you know. Um, and so it got to the point where they hit it for so long, right? They've been working on hiding it for so long. They hit it for 100 years. A group didn't have a public conversation in Wilmington about what happened in 1898, literally until 1998. 1898 Memorial Park was put in 2008. And so it's like, oh, somebody find out. Let's do a little bit about it to make them feel like we're changing the way. But a park doesn't change the effects that happen to the community. It does build awareness. It does market it. It does make people be more aware. But it doesn't change the effects. So then here it comes again with George Floyd. And now people want to do more. Oh, let's put a placard here, you know. And it makes people feel good to go to the placard, take a sign. And then we had the ceremony. But then those same people go and still make decisions that keep us at bay or, or, or keep us from having a leg up or, or gain um, or getting any gain in, in this community. Um, those are the things that I'm hoping people are paying more attention, attention to um, because as we've been given the tour, yeah, we do have, we do have plaques in certain areas, but a lot of the vacant lots that I showed you, you didn't see any plaques in those areas. And, uh, uh, people have been asking why and, and, and what for, and who owned those properties and things of that nature. Because a lot of the areas where blood was shedded that are attached to the 1898 story are still vacant lot. And you talked about, you know, the political power, obviously, but there was also economic power. And one of the things actually that struck me is all the black owned businesses you pointed out and uh, some of the information about how uh, black economic power actually, you know, kind of... Mm-hmm revived in a way and, 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 and folks built new businesses and the incredible resilience in the face of, 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 of all the, the, the repression. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just talk a little bit about how Wilmington feels now for black entrepreneurs, black business owners. Yeah. So during 1898, this was definitely a very striving area. Wilmington had about 125 entrepreneurs, uh, uh, from the man that will paint your horse and carriage to, you know, the first black daily printing newspaper in the state. Um, but then after 1898, a big foundation of those entrepreneurs did leave, um, were ran out of town and had to restart businesses or some of them maybe did, never even had the courage to restart businesses, just went and got a good job and just stayed safe and wherever they moved to or went to. But because of the Jim Crow era um, and segregation, um, it did create a moment again for uh, black entrepreneurs to step up and um, create opportunity for themselves as you know, you weren't able to go to other entities and get insurance or get um, uh, a doctor or, you know, have a lawyer or uh, somebody to make your watch or tailor you. Um, those um, individuals uh, were able to revitalize themselves after 1898 simply just because uh, no whites were still coming up to help. You know, there was no the white hospital would see blacks. So there still had to be black doctors here, you know, um, 
And the same goes for many other different businesses and entities. But now, as a black entrepreneur in Wilmington, when it's only 18%, not only as an entrepreneur, you can't uh, create a business that is just culturally exclusive to your culture or your community um, because your community isn't even at a high enough population to sustain it. And even at 18%, not all 18% are going to come and patronize you all at the time, especially when a lot of the 18% in Wilmington, honestly, um, are at a low income living wage level. Uh, the big neighborhoods and middle class and high class neighborhoods in Wilmington are not majority black. None of them are. Uh, majority of the, of the neighborhoods that are majority black are uh, housing authority project, section eight, low income area neighborhoods. Um, and so as an entrepreneur here in Wilmington, you see a lot of businesses open and close. You know, uh, when we started the tour, I, sh I showed you a venue, a business that's not open anymore, but you can still see the sign outside because they just closed. Like literally we were just giving tours last year, telling people to go and patronize this business. And now here it is a year later and this business is, is not still here, but you know, I look right across the street, you know, where we're at now. And these businesses were here longer than that, than that business was over there. And you just, you just sometimes ask yourself, you know, was that, did that person not have it all to be the successful entrepreneur for that entity? You know, was it one or two things that they did wrong to not still be successful or, you know, is there something else happening? Cedric is building his tour business and trying to open a museum to illuminate the history. For a deeper dive into the lead up and the aftermath of the coup, pick up journalist David Zucchino's Pulitzer Prize winning history, Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy. That's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thanks to Cedric Harrison, David Bank, and our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Sign up for Impact Alpha Open, our free weekly newsletter, directly at impactalpha.com, or become a subscriber to get full access to our award-winning daily coverage in impact investing and sustainable finance. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe. I'm Brian Walsh. Be sure to check back for next week's briefing. Until then, take good care.